good to see you this 4th of July weekend. I have you here worshiping with us. The church that I grew up in, I grew up, many of you know, in southeastern uh, Virginia. And the 4th of July was always uh, unique because we had the, the naval base. I, I, heard, I heard this week on the radio, actually. Biggest naval base in the world. I knew that in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, but it turned 100 years old. And uh, there were sailors from that base that came to our church. And then first uh, tactical fighter wing at Langley Air Force Base in Fort Eustis and Fort Monroe. And so a lot, of, a lot of unique things when it comes to the military, especially the thinking about that on the 4th of July. A lot of unique, pretty cool things. The, the staff, I obviously wasn't old, old enough since I was growing up. The staff got to, to uh, many of them um, right before we got there. So my dad missed out, and he still is bummed to this day, like decades later. They got to uh, launch off of an aircraft carrier on an F-14. Um, I'm signing up for that if you ever have a, a connection. Uh, and, uh, you know, F-15s, all, all fun stuff, especially as a boy growing up. Fun stuff. And they would we'd talk about that and, and hear from people uh, who love the Lord on the 4th of July. And So this was always a fun time of the year uh, where I grew up. And so I'm hoping, and my prayer is, that it's a, uh, an enjoyable season for your family. Fireworks, if you're traveling. Uh, but, but most of all, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here to worship. Because we do know as believers that true freedom is found in Christ. Uh, not, in, not in a government, not in, not in a nation. It's found in Christ. Growing up, uh, the church that I went to and then the, the denomination as a whole um, saw the culture uh, moving in, in a direction that was uh, in, in, in conflict with, with God's word. Um, they, they saw the, the culture moving, and they sought to try and figure out a way to, to get the culture to come back, to, to align with God's word. And I think that was true. I think that as I was growing up early in my childhood, moving into my teenage years, you really saw um, uh, the, the culture kind of move in a different direction, opposed to the morals, the teachings of God's word. But I, I think that, that the leaders in my church in particular, and then wider across the United States made a strategic mistake. And, and I've talked about this before, but, but we began to, to tell the culture what we were against rather than what we were for. And we, one of the, the main uh, instruments or, or um, uh, tools that we used to, to kind of drive this home was uh, boycotting. I mean, there, we boycotted everything. I mean, and, and we were happy doing it. Like, we're not going to Disney this year, and we're happy about it. We're not going to eat your cereal, and by golly, I'm happy about it, all right? And so we, were, we boycotted everything and made a strategic mistake, I believe, telling the culture what we were against rather than what we were for. Now, I want to give a caveat. I didn't do this in the first service, but a, 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 after a conversation that I had, I do want to kind of give you a caveat. If, if as a family, you are compelled, provoked, we're going to use, see that word here in a few minutes, provoked to... to um, Maybe boycott, I don't really like that term, but boycott something, abstain from something, stay away from something for the sake of, of, of uh, morality or the sake of your faith. I think that's a good thing. In fact, I would even, I could even argue and probably would argue that it's a sin not to follow that. If that's, if that's a compulsion that the Holy Spirit gives you, you've got you to gotta follow that. Okay, So don't do it. Abstain from it. But that is altogether different. That is altogether different than me standing on the stage and saying, collectively, as a group, we're going to boycott this thing if you love Jesus. All right? That is different. And that's exactly what happened. As, as a group, we used our collective buying power to boycott things in an effort to try and move them without a heart change, 
move them back to morality as we saw in God's word, or as we see in God's word. And I think that was a strategic mistake. I, more than ever, want my neighbors. I want the parents at the, at the baseball field. I want the, the dads that I stand next to on the football field when we're moving the chains down the, down the, the sideline to know what I am for much more than what I'm against. I want people to know what I'm for. I want, I want them to know freedom in Christ and, and what I am for rather than what I am against. Now, I'm not smart enough to come up with that myself. The, the Apostle Paul did that. In Acts chapter 17, which is where we're going to be this morning. He's the one who, who kind of lays this, this blueprint out for us on how to engage a culture that has a different worldview. How, how, to, how, to, um, how to compel or, or um, to not argue but debate, uh, have a discussion with people that don't see the world in the same way that you and I, if you know Christ this morning, see the world. If their worldview goes through a different grid than God's word. The Apostle Paul gives us that framework. And so on this 4th of July weekend, I want to look at how the Apostle Paul confronts a culture and a people who, who do not see the world in the same way and through the same grid with the power of the Holy Spirit that he sees it. And in doing so, hopefully you and I will follow his lead. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 16. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, uh, them is Silas and Timothy. It, it, Paul was going to meet, meet Silas and Timothy there in Athens. He beat them. He, he arrived to the city first. Now he's just waiting for their arrival. Now, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I love this when it says that Paul was provoked. It gives me a grid um, through which I can understand some of, sometimes the things that I feel about our church. Like sometimes there are there are things about our church that just uh, they they move me. They they incite something inside of my soul that that I want us to be the, the, the kind of church I want us to be. The kind of church I want us to to, to uh, uh, reflect to our culture to our community. I love that this word's used, provoked. And the question is this morning, has there ever been an issue, a gospel issue that has provoked your heart, that has provoked your spirit, that has, something inside of you was incited, and you couldn't sleep at night until it was solved? Has there ever been a gospel issue that has provoked your heart, that has provoked your life, and you just had to do something about it? You weren't going to rest. You weren't going to sleep well until you got busy working on whatever it was. Whatever the issue, the gospel issue was that God has provoked your heart to do. Has there, has there been a time recently that your heart was provoked to action? Has there been a, a time recently that, that a gospel issue has provoked you to action? The Apostle Paul's heart was provoked. That's one of the things that I loved about being a youth pastor. You, teenagers, you could, their, their hearts were moved to action very quickly. Like they wouldn't overanalyze it to death. If there was an issue, there was a gospel issue, many times gospel issues, and you would just lay that before them in a way that they could make a difference. They were all in, and they were all in very, very quickly. One particular time comes to mind. I was a youth pastor, and uh, uh, my brother, he's a missionary today in Thailand, but 
He was uh, in China before that. And I was having a conversation with him on the phone. He lived in a, a small town by China standards, 8 million people, but they, it wasn't even big enough to have mass transit, but um, a small town by China standards, um, and uh, up in the northern part of the country, and uh, he, he would go out and do ministry out in, in the villages around this particular town that he lived in. And there was one particular town that was very poor. Uh, like I said, it was a cold area of the country, and many of the kids, even some of the adults, many of the adults didn't have shoes. And it would, it would cause sickness, it, 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 disease would move through their town. And he was telling me about it. And he was telling me how many they would need and, and different things. And I thought, you know what, that's something that our students could make a difference in. Now, we probably can't give every person in that village a, a pair of shoes. But some of the kids, some of the people, we could get shoes on their feet so that disease would stop moving so rapidly through the village. So I brought it back to our students. We did a, a series on it. And I said... I said, guys, we can make a difference. We can make a difference. And I set the goal at 200 pairs of shoes. We were a student ministry, about 75, 80, 80 students. And I said, um, we, we, I, I thought that our goal should be uh, 200. One of the adults in our ministry, one of the volunteers said, 800, Scott, we can raise, we can get 800 shoes. And I thought she was nuts. Lost her mind. There was no chance that we were going to get 800 shoes, pairs of shoes. But I said, all right, I, I'm going to listen. And so I told the students, I got to go one month. We're going to gather 800 pairs of shoes. And then you're going to put them in boxes. You're going to put the address on them. And we're going to ship them to China. And it's going to make a difference. As these missionaries take these shoes and the gospel with them. And people are going to come to know Christ as a result of the work that you've done. A month later, after they had gathered shoes. I mean, they were inside of the finance. They were provoked. They went to bed uh, uh, thinking about it. How can I get shoes? How can I, where can I find shoes? Where can I bring some good shoes? Can mom and dad give me $50 so I can buy a pair of shoes? For a month, these students, they were on fire. Everything was about gathering these shoes for this village in China. After one month, they had gathered, bought, found 1,200 pairs of shoes for this village. I went to a meeting with some of the leaders in the church, and I said, guys, you would not believe what these teenagers have done. They have raised, they've gathered, they've found 1,200 pairs of shoes for this village in China that doesn't have the money to buy shoes. It doesn't even have access. One of the, I didn't tell them the access part, but, but one of the, the, the men uh, raised his hand and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Scott. And I was taken aback. I mean, that's how he said it. I was taken aback, and, and I, I said, what do you mean? He said, those shoes were probably made in China, shipped to the United States, and all you're going to do is ship them back. I thought, well, that, you have a point, but here's the thing. Uh, are, you, are, are you so uh, in, in, in Web City, United States, is that so on your mind that you don't understand that there are many, many, many people in the world that not, not only don't they have the money to get shoes, but they don't even have the access like, there is no Walmart to go down and find a pair of shoes. There are none. They can't, they can't get to them. And there's no possible way to send enough money to the missionaries there to go get them. So we're just going to ship them ourselves. Some of the adults gave money to it. We shipped about 1,200 pairs of shoes to China. Had pictures of these kids that had shoes on for the very first time in their life in the because these teenagers were provoked 
They were incited by a gospel issue. And they were determined to make a difference. People know Jesus today because those teenagers gathered shoes. When is the last time your heart was moved by a gospel issue? You were incited by a gospel issue. I sat with 45,000 college students in 2012 in the Georgia Dome. And they were told about an issue, a gospel issue, of slavery inside the United States today. Many of them in, in, in the sex industry. And they determined they were going to end it. And these poor college students gathered over a quarter of a million dollars, gave over a quarter of a million dollars to begin the effort to end slavery inside the United States in the 21st century. Many of them, I've read stories since, many of them are still fighting to make a difference. They have, their, their, their entire career was changed because these, these uh, uh, speakers stood up and said, you can make a difference, you can make a difference, you can make a difference. And they were just naive enough to believe it. And now, five years later, they're making a difference. When's the last time a gospel issue incited you to action? As believers, gospel issues should move us to action. There's, there should be something that God places inside of your heart that you just can't even sleep at night until something is done about it. That's what I, why I love what's going on in Noel, what, what our church is doing in Noel. Reaching refugees, that's a gospel issue. These, these people in, in, in slavery, uh, in, in, not, 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 not physically, but spiritually, they are in bondage. And they need to know what it means to be free in Christ. And God has, has brought them to our doorstep, and we are making headway. We are moving uh, to take the gospel to people. That's a gospel issue. That's why I love what we do with foster care and adoption. That's a gospel issue. That's a gospel issue. When's the last time a gospel issue moved you to action? The Apostle Paul was provoked to action. When he walked around the city of Athens and he saw all of these idols, and he knew that worshiping them, giving your life to them, would lead to bankruptcy, would lead a person wanting. And so he was moved to action. And we see how he was moved to action in the following verses. Verse 17. So, because he, his heart was provoked, because he was moved to action, he did something about it. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So if you know Christ this morning, this is, this is great news for us. Paul gives us this blueprint of how to have a conversation or how to, to, to um, talk to people who have a different worldview from us. People who don't see the world through a biblical worldview or through a biblical grid. He gives us a, a blueprint on how that's to happen. That word reason there is a cool word. It means to dialogue. It means to dialogue. That means that Paul did not stand up and give a lecture to people that disagreed with him. He didn't stand up and preach to people who disagreed with him. It hurts my heart a little bit, but that's not what he did. Like he, he had a dialogue. He had a conversation with them. He dialogued with them. And, and, he, and he sought to understand... 
their worldview from their perspective. He wanted to get inside of their worldview, and then he, he was going to poke holes in their worldview from that perspective. He wasn't going to say, because the Bible says so. They don't see that as authority. And many in our culture and in our country don't see the Bible as authority anymore as well. And so Paul doesn't use the Bible as authority. He looks to get inside their worldview and then poke holes from their own worldview, from their own standards. Let me give you an example, and then I'll show you how Paul, how the Apostle Paul does the exact same thing in that culture. In our culture, one of the things that is growing, uh, books are, are volumes and volumes of books, are, are talk about how God doesn't exist. It's just the natural world. That's the, the highest order. That's the, the highest truth. Um, the, the highest affirmation of truth is science. Many would say that, which is kind of ironic because that's not a scientific statement. That's a value statement. That's neither here nor there. That's not my point this morning. But they'll say that science is the highest point or the highest good, the highest standard of truth. And there's nothing above us. There's nothing above humans to whom we answer. So we are the highest standard of of truth. We don't answer to anybody. Our, that is spreading in our culture. Especially at the university level. Now, with that as, as part of our culture, that's a truth that many in our culture, although we disagree with, that's, many, uh, that, that's a truth that many affirm in our culture. That, that we don't answer to anybody. We are the highest level. You can't prove it. Then, 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 then it's not true. We don't answer to anybody. So, a few years ago, there was a guy by the name of Bernie Madoff, Ponzi scheme. You remember, he sold billions and billions of dollars. There was a collective outrage. Our culture was aghast at the level of crime that he committed. When, when that happened, I had a conversation with a young man. I'd say young man, he wasn't much younger than me. He was a college student, and um, he, he held this truth that, 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 that God probably doesn't exist. He doesn't answer to anybody. And so I asked him this question. I knew he was mad about this whole uh, Ponzi scheme. So I said, friend, why are you mad at, at, at Bernie Madoff? And he said, uh, because he stole billions of dollars. People are bankrupt. And he took advantage of them. Like he was, he was in a place of strength. He was in a place of power. He was in a place of influence. And he took advantage of some people. He stole their money so that he could live high on the hall. And that's why I'm mad. And I said, okay. Um, but why, if, if, he, if you don't answer to anybody, if there's nobody above us, why do you have the, the right to project your morality onto Bernie Madoff? He kind of looked perplexed. He said, Scott, it's against the law. I said, no, 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 the law doesn't have anything to do with this. We're talking about values here. Uh, Hitler and Mao Zedong and Stalin, they killed a lot of people. We would all say that that was immoral, but that wasn't against the law in their country. So, so leave the law out of it. Why do you have the right to project your morality onto Bernie Madoff? And he said, Scott, it's wrong for the, the strong to take advantage of the weak. I said, who told you that? Like, who told you that? He said, everybody agrees with that. I said, not everybody. Not everybody agrees with that. And I finally got him to the point through conversation. I said, we finally had to agree that for us, for, for us to have a, a consistent um, philosophy of life, 
a consistent morality, the only way that we can project our morality onto somebody else is if we both answer to a higher authority. And what I tried to do was use things that he believed. I never brought the Bible into it. I never brought the Bible into it in, in an overt way. Obviously, obviously there, were, there were themes that, that, that we see in the scriptures. But I never brought the Bible into it until he admitted that he was not in a place to project his morality onto somebody else, even though we both agreed that it was wrong. I used his worldview. I got inside of it. And then I began to poke holes in it by his own standards. That's exactly what we're going to see the Apostle Paul do here in the following verses. Verse middle of 18. Some said, who or what does this babbler, intellectual lightweight is what that word means, wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him to the area uh, and took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We have never heard this thing about Jesus and the resurrection before. This is strange. That you're, the things that you're sharing to, uh, to us. And uh, uh, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time with nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is a brilliant way to start his conversation. He finds common ground. He says, I was walking around the city, and I saw all of these idols, and it was apparent to me that you are a religious culture. You're a religious people. So, uh, as, as luck would have it, so am I. Obviously, it's not luck, but he would say, so am I. We have that in common with each other. You're religious, I'm religious. We have that in common. Now, he's going to share how their, how their worldviews views differ. Look at how he does it. For, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar in, uh, with this inscription. To, an, uh, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is walking through the city. He sees all of these idols. The idol of worship uh, of the sun, of the moon. And he finally comes to an idol that says to an unknown God. And Paul says... I understand what you're doing here. You have all of these deities that you seek to appease. And just in case you miss one, you have this one to an unknown God. And just in case there's one out there that you don't know about, if he ever shows up and wants to hold you accountable, you can say, no, 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 this is yours. I get what you're trying to do here. But what you worship as unknown, I know. The God that you say that you don't know about, I know, and I know him personally, and I want to share with you who he is. And that's exactly what he does. Look at how it unfolds. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by humans as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In these temples, and this is where he begins to poke holes from inside their own worldview. Inside these temples, they would have servants. And the servants' only job was to serve the idols. They would feed them. Obviously, they're not going to eat it. But in Thailand, they do the same thing. They have these idols, and they give food to them. 
And um, they, they, these servants will feed these idols. When they get dirty, they wash them. They buff them. They make sure that they're bright, they're shiny. And Paul, in, in a very, uh, very uh, brilliant way, says, what kind of deity is served? Uh, what, if, if it is uh, worth worshiping, why does it need you? If it needs help being clean, how is it going to clean you when your life is revealed as dirty, as sinful? How does it have the power to do anything for you if you have to serve it? To which they would have been scratching their heads. I never thought about that before. That is true. That's a true statement. How in the world can you claim that it needs to be worshipped, this idol needs to be worshipped, if it is dependent upon you? I put this in my, in my notes. Here's the thing about idols. And our culture has them. Now, they're not you know, bronze or gold statues, but we have our idols that our culture worships. And I put in my notes, here's the thing about idols. If your ultimate allegiance is to anything or anyone but the one true God, you will uh, become a slave to it. Constantly having to feed it, sacrifice to it, wash it, justify it, and defend it. And you see people do that all the time in our culture. And Paul says, what is worth worshiping if it is dependent upon us? Word survival. If it's dependent upon us to remain clean, if it's dependent upon us to have something to eat, is it really worth worshiping? Verse 26, he continues to make his argument. And he made from one man, talking about God now, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us at all. For, and he quotes some, some of their poets, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being like a gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God... Uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, you didn't know up to now. You were ignorant. And God hasn't hold you accountable just yet. But now you are held to account because you know. I showed up and I told you about the God that you said was unknown. Now he is known to you. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear uh, you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined and believed, among them, uh, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. So some rejected Paul's um, presentation of the gospel, but others responded with repentance. And on this day, the church in Athens was born. This morning, when we celebrate freedom, is there an issue that you see people, is there a gospel issue where you see people enslaved? 
obviously not, not physically necessarily, although it might be. Is there a gospel issue where you see people enslaved and you know that unless the Holy Spirit intervenes, it is headed towards bankruptcy? The people that are in the midst of it are headed towards bankruptcy. Is there a gospel issue that has provoked you recently to action? If not, would you pray that God would reveal something that incites your spirit, that incites your soul, that moves you to action for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of lives? We need to know what freedom is like, who, what, what fr real freedom really, uh, what real freedom is, and how it's only found in Christ. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning, and I pray that each of us would have a gospel issue that moves us to action. And as, and as we are moved to action, that we would uh, follow the Apostle Paul's lead, and we would seek to have dialogue, to really get to know the people that you have brought us in contact with. And in the midst of that relationship, they would come to know you. They would be moved to, rem to repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. Jesus. It's hard to resist that urge to go.